Hi, I'm Juliette Burton. I'm a comedian, broadcast journalist, and apparently a human being, too. The best thing for me about being a human on this planet is exploring it. Exploring places, sure, but also exploring people, their stories, their motivations, and whatever it is that gets them excited about being a human themselves. In my pursuit of exploration, I've done a lot of different jobs in my life so far, before I found comedy. I've been a cafe manager, a journalist, a waiter, an usher, I even worked on a rodent farm. But once upon a time, I worked as a radio reporter. And that is a background I shared with our guest for this episode, John Waite, who used to work in radio, but is now a guide and massive enthusiast of Highgate Cemetery a rather spectacular Victorian cemetery in North London with a remarkable history we will delve into with a rather remarkable guide. The cemetery is known as the Disneyland of Death. Be prepared, gang. This particular episode is quite special indeed. So join me on this rather wonderful episode of Not So Lonely Planet. I met John after driving up to the gates to the cemetery where producer Andy was trying hard to record the sound of the colossal iron barriers that even the best of producers come up against unforeseen auditory issues sometimes. This is the original game. You get the game? It's silent. We can bang it after. Yeah, let's bang it. Yeah, great. John has just given me permission to bang in this episode. Always nice to get a good rapport going with my guests, but I had no idea we'd hit it off that well. Hello, John. Juliet, how nice to meet Lovely you. Lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's my pleasure. All, always enthusiastic about welcoming people to Highgate. Wonderful. My favourite place. Why is it your favourite place? It, there's something really special about it, which I'm going to show you, I hope. Uh, I always say this to my tours, you know, I take people on tours, you know. Uh, I hope at the end of an hour and a half or whatever it is, an hour and a quarter, you'll agree with me, this is a really, really special place. Um... Yeah, it's just been somewhere I've been coming for, would you believe, nearly 50 years. Oh, 50 years, but yes, you're only nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get on really well. <laughs> um, so what brought you here in the first place? Well, I was a trainee uh, reporter, radio reporter. Oh, and, I love those people. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and, those, uh, and, and um, this place had been locked up for 50 years. The company that ran it had sort of gone into liquidation, or at least wasn't operating it, and so... There was a grand reopening, or at least the gates we are opened officially, in 1976 to allow people to come in and have a look around for the first time in half a century. I was sent up as a big story, you know, this is the most famous cemetery in the country. I was sent up by the Today programme on Radio 4 as a trainee reporter, and I just, you know, fell in love as a bit strong, but it was a special place, and I've been coming ever since, on and on. And now what is your role here? Well, I've done most things. I was a trustee for many years, but now I come every week and take tours around. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing a bit well, more inside. Well, I take you around. I'm looking forward to doing it. Let's, yeah. uh, let's go in and find out a bit more. Oh. Oh, that gate is really heavy. It's the original... Oh, it I mean, I say, I say that, I'm not helping you at all. <laughs> it's the original um, Victorian gate. It's really, really heavy, but... There you go, producer Andy. There's your gate recording. John kindly banged for us all very generously there. 200 years old? Opened in 1839, so getting on for 200 years old, yes. Um, So this is the main courtyard, and this is where the journey into the unknown begins. 
The man Stephen Geary, who designed this place, he wanted it to have a wow factor, and my goodness me, it did. Two hundred years ago, when you were buried, it was all very dignified and solemn, but rather boring. You know, you put in a hole in the ground. He designed this place as the city of the dead, with its own uh, streets, its own carriageway, its own buildings, not ordinary buildings, shops and, 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 and houses, funerary buildings from around the world. And, of course, 200 years ago, People didn't travel around the world. There were no photos. They didn't know what the Egyptian avenue, the Egyptian way of death, looked like, or the first catacombs, or the Greek crypts. They were, it was sensational, absolutely sensational. And he said, this is a journey into the unknown. So as we go, Juliet, see, we're going to go up those steps. Can you see the top of the steps? We're a bit near. When we get up there, you will never see a straight path. Because a straight path would show you where you were going. This is a journey into the unknown to discover, Stephen Geary said, the invisible beyond. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm already very excited. Um, this, so can I just... Qu- a question. Was When it was originally built, was it about the drama or was it about the spirituality? Was it about theatrics or was it about something more to do with... It was cold souls? profit. Cold profit. Nice, OK. <laughs> here's, here's a man who uh, saw an opportunity. It was about necessity, Mm -hmm. because London in those days, 1801, was the very first census, and it showed that London had something like 600,000 people. It made it by a million miles the biggest city in the world. Right? I mean, no city came near 100. We had 600,000. And think about it, little medieval city busting at the seams, people pouring in because of the Industrial Revolution. So uh, within 20 years, another million would have been. Every single grave filled up. So where were rich people? You know, forget about poor people. Where are rich people going? to be buried. Stephen Geary said, I'll build some private cemeteries. Big controversy. Debates in, the, in Parliament. An Act of Parliament had to be passed and voted on to allow him to build the Magnificent Seven. Seven famous Victorian cemeteries, all still there. Council Green, the biggest. Tower Hamlets, the smallest. But this was his baby. That's his office up there. He's buried over there. This was his baby. He spent three years landscaping it into what some unkind people have called the Disneyland of death. (gasps) Let's go into the Disneyland of death. (laughs) This way, please. (laughs) People have never seen anything like this. I like that. So it's a theme park. It's basically, it's pure profit. It's all about trying to sell the idea of being remembered and celebrated beyond this particular lifetime, right? It basically allowed some very rich people. I mean, we're talking very rich. There's a gentleman up here who's Muslim, we might see for his daughter who died. He spent £10 million. It allowed rich people to celebrate their wealth and show off their wealth, you know, and go to town on death, which in the old days you couldn't. You know, you were just in a, in a grave uh, in the ground. And also it had the practical value of taking the pressure off um, London, as I say, that was bursting at the seams. So here we are. This is the first of those serpentine paths, isn't it? It's very, very uh, uh, atmospheric, I think. Um, And everywhere you see, of course, the monuments, the crypts, the, 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 the headstones, what you see are symbols. Everything here means something. Everything. So the most common symbol, I think, is probably a circle. 
Um, that's where we get wreaths from. A wreath is just a circle. The circle of life. Mm -hmm. Life doesn't end. We have, for example, that's a Celtic cross. Celtic cross has a circle in. We probably have more of those than an ordinary cross. Even, look, here's a really straightforward. And you see those sort of three plinths there yeah, leading up to the cross. Though that three is important. Three is an important number. There's another three there, another three there. Faith, hope and charity, that's what leads to resurrection. Oh. Yeah, so in here, everything, everything means something. At this point, John, ever the radio reporter and producer, started stamping on the leaves and winking at us with an impish grin on his face. He was offering us some expert wild track, an auditory landscape for your senses to feel enriched by. Truly a master of the trade is John and was fast becoming one of my heroes. Trees are sort of the backdrop to the, the avenue of, of the tombs. Is it tombs or...? or, or? These are tombs because they're underground, but we have mausoleums and we have crypts. And um, uh, very interestingly, actually, not many people are buried here because what happens with these really quite big um, grave spaces is if you slide the top off here, that's how it worked, underneath is a, a brick-lined shaft goes down as deep as, as the number of people you're going to put in there, four or six. I mean, it went up to 16. We've got crypts for 16 people. The coffins would go, and staples would be put in the, in the, in, in the bricks, and coffins would go on the staples. So not actually in the ground, many of them. They're on staples. This cemetery felt like we were in the middle of a Lord of the Rings-style forest that just so happened to have tombs, crypts and catacombs built into it. John enlightened me to the nature of the... Uh, nature around us. Now, these trees, yes. none of them were here. This was a cemetery park. It had 50 full-time gardeners, and it's only, I don't know, 20 acres, something like that. It had a regulation height of grass, peacocks wandering in the grounds, not a single tree. These trees all grew up in that 50 years. But they look so well-established. They, they Well, of course, they, they, they are nearly 100 years old, but when I first came here in 1976, there were over a million trees. This is less, fewer, this is fewer than 100,000 because we couldn't move. Um, so all the trees that you see here, they're all self-seeded. Some are protected species, so we cannot remove them. Others, if we did, would compromise a grave. So that's how we've chosen, because we couldn't operate with the number of trees so we had to make a decision and that's how we decided which went and which stayed um, the ones that compromise a grave and they're lovely I think this is one of the for me the most special things about the place is the combination mm. of the natural and the man-made yes but all, all similarly new as in not hundreds and hundreds of years old only. Yeah, oh, most definitely. This was the new age, wasn't it? This was, you know, Britain bursting forth and taking a lead in the world. And, you know, it had invented the steam engine. Now it invented the private cemetery. And people came on day trips, you know, to see it. They well, were... Speaking of which, there's something caught my eye. What, what, what's the symbol of this one, which has a... It has a cross, but underneath the cross yeah, it's the, all... Um, we are... This is an Anglican cemetery. We're very religious here, or supposedly so. Are we? We are. I'd like to just highlight here the note of sarcasm in John's voice... Some people's bottoms clench a little tighter when religion is mentioned, so yes, we're about to talk religion, and there's some big little words, like the big three-letter word, God. 
A lot of people don't like that word, but then again, a lot of people don't like the word moist, and it hasn't done Mary Berry's career any harm, has it? You could be buried here if you weren't an Anglican. You know, you were called a dissenter, so should you be a Catholic, should you be a Jew, a Muslim, a Methodist, some weird sect like that? (laughs) Um, There's a bit of unconsecrated, unsanctified ground by the back fence, Uh and you could go in there. But everybody who's in here is supposed to be, and mainly were, uh, Anglicans, quite fervent. Religion much more important in those days than perhaps it is today. This is typical in this... (laughs) There's lots of crosses. Uh, This is the Rock of Ages, basically. And if you chain yourself to the Rock of Ages, Jesus... Um, and, and the Christian faith, you will have a secure foundation. So that's why underneath that cross of that particular tomb there is what looks like, made out of stone, more rocks. It's just yeah. lots and lots of boulders and some a, a, what looks like a chain that's been carved into the, into that, the rock. That's the idea, the solid foundation that Christianity and, and a belief in, in Jesus Christ gives you. There's lots of symbols. Yes, um, tell me about symbols. Well, you know, suggesting who is who. Look here, let's go into this crypt. See, can you... Well, you can't tell, but I'm going to give you a clue. Look, look at the railings around the clip. OK, the railings are black and they've got lots of spikes on... Um... Can you tell what the, the sort of posts are? The posts? They are, they are... Let me put you out of your misery. Torches? No, they are cannon stock. Cannons. This gentleman was a very Sir General Sir Loftus Otway. Oh, if I just read his name, I might have guessed yeah. it. Yeah, let's go in. This is a typical... So we're about to go in what looks like... Um, it's a very heavy-duty black door that... Um, is it made of uh, wood or...? No, 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 no. No, they're all made of bronze or, you know, or, or, or lead or, you know, really heavy stuff. It's, it's why they've around, survived so well. It's surrounded by um, sort of stone... So it's, it's, so it's a stone tomb, but it's actually we're going to go into it and we're, we're not, not going to have to bend down. It's a substantial no, size. We, oh, it's a, this, I think this is probably the biggest by area. OK. Um, we've got more substantial, more expensive more, and higher, but th- we're going to go down into this. Right. Um, anyway, come Come in and have a look. Another heavy door. Come in, come in, please. And down some stone steps we ventured and into the rather beautiful tomb. Never thought I'd describe a tomb as beautiful, but it really was. As you can see, from all the coffins, mm. the whole family is here. The family are in the coffins? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hello. Yeah. I was rest well. Yeah. Sometimes when businesses come around, particularly Americans, they say, oh, these props. Mm. Say, no. It's not a film. No, it's not a film, although lots of films are made here. Well, what well, films have been made here? Well, well... Um, once upon a while, Hammer leased the place, so they made a lot of you know horror films, Dracula films. Christopher Lee was here. More recently, we've had Fantastic Beasts too. So, so Eddie Redmayne and Jude Law is set in Highgate. Aureen Niffenegger, time traveller's wife, author, was so taken with the cemetery she set her second book, Their Fearful Cemetery, a ghost story set in Highgate. So, you know, there's lots of people inspired by, by coming here. An interesting, eclectic range of people. Um, did they all get out of the cemetery? <laughs> no one that we know uh, has, has been left overnight. We've had one or two people locked in because they just didn't take any notice of the bell. or the, you know, And we, we ring the big bell. There's a bell? Well, yes. To, to, when, you, when you were being buried here, the bell would toll, right, to summon the mourners. Of course. And it would toll the number of years you had lived. 
and and the bell was made by the same man who made a rather more famous bell uh, called Big Ben. Yes. All all of the Big Ben family, all of the Mears family, all of the Whitechapel foundry family who made all the world's great bells, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, Big Ben and so on, they're all buried here. We'll see them in a second. So he made our bell. Is that exclusive just to the cemetery for the um, ringing out the number of years that you've... You've lived for. We don't do it now, um, but that was how it was done in Victorian times. When yeah. you say that we're, we don't do it now, can you still get buried here? Oh, yes. We have 300 plots uh, left, about 100 full-size burial plots, you know, for, for, for a body. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly on the east, which is the newer side. Uh, the, the west is really quite full, where we're standing, the original side. And 200 for cremated remains. So they are most valuable... Uh, asset. This is a charity. It receives no money from the government, not from the council, Camden Council. Every other of the great Victorian cemeteries, my local one, Ambley Park, is paid for by Hackney. They're all paid for by the councils, except us, for some reason. Camden doesn't want to spend any money, so we need that money, that income from grave sales and visitor numbers. Right, well, I felt like it was going to be an audition for me to, to be able to be buried here, but now I feel like you want my money, so... I um, want your money. OK, yeah. uh, I will try to get some money. <laughs> You'll need quite a bit. <laughs> How much would it cost? Well, I, I, I really, I genuinely don't know, but, you know, we have a duty under charity law to maximise income, so mm. if you are going to... Um, be buried here in a very prominent spot by a main carriageway, just as in Victorian times. You're probably going to need £75,000, something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, I just have that lying around. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll dig that up. A lot of moolah in podcasts, I'm <laughs> sure. Oh, you've been misinformed, my friend. <laughs> I'd like to make it very clear. Podcasts are not a massively lucrative business, but we're not in it for the money. We're in it for the exploration. So please do share this episode and the series far and wide, if you like, when we're done. That's the only way we'll be able to make more. And we do so want to make more, to take you on more journeys. I've interrupted John and passed me for a promo shout-out. That's how important your shares are. It was designed, as I say, as a cemetery park, not a single tree. And now it is the only Grade 1, so we're up there with Stonehenge and, you know, Westminster Abbey, Grade 1 cemetery park in the the country. But another thing that really interests me is who is here, the mixture of people who are going to spend eternity as neighbours. Can I just... There's three within a few feet here. Can I just point them out to you? Please do. Let's meet them. This is Alexander Litvinenko. The Russian murder victim, poisoned by the Russians. Remember, a pellet of polonium was put into his tea. He was a critic of Mr Putin, an ex-Secret Service agent, defected to Britain. And, as all too often happens, sadly, in Britain, the Russians sent two assassins and they poisoned him. By the time it was discovered, not only that he was dying, but from what, he was heavily irradiated, as I say, polonium. And so he is buried there in a lead-lined coffin. People think, oh, this is just full of Victorian people. No, it's not. 2006, it says there. 2006, yeah. yeah. Let's just go quickly round the corner. This is another classic piece of Victorian symbolism, the column of life. Can you see it there? A classical column, right? Can you see that how the top has been broken off, mm-hmm. right? That's meant to suggest a life cut short. The length of the Victorian column is the, would indicate the length of the life. We have a lot of small ones, short ones, because many young people, many children died 
if we just look at Alexander Litvinenko again, designed by his w widow, that is the column of life. Do you see? It's a, oh. it's a, it's a, a piece of pink granite that has been broken off. You know, it's not a classical column, but and um, it's quite short because he was in his thirties, quite young. Yes, of course. Just then, John and I approached a fork in the road of the pathway we were on. He was about to venture towards the left-hand path, but we spotted someone a few metres away clutching a bouquet or two and looking in a rather solitary mood. It turns out that in that corner, quite a few celebrities hang out. So is this somebody bringing some flowers? Yes, I was going to take you there, and I'll tell you why. Because it's George Michael's grave just round the corner, and next to him is Lucian Freud, and next to him is it's quite a nice little corner. Who needs celebrities when you have the life-affirming, effervescent enthusiasm of someone like John? It is. I mean, I just... Every time I see this, and I was here yesterday, <laughs> every time I see it, my heart skips a beat. I absolutely love it. The serenity, the calm, the peacefulness, the tranquility. Particularly here, we've got the place to ourselves. The public aren't in. We're the only ones in this cemetery, you know, apart from 177,000 dead people. And, uh, and I sometimes do wander around and, and I, I feel it's almost like a live being, you know, that has been rescued because it had fallen into terrible disrepair and there was lots of vandalism going on, it was being destroyed. My personal belief is that the company that owned it was hoping it would fall down. They could redevelop it then for real estate. Very, obviously, rich they'd become on the top of Highgate Hill. But it was taken over by the charity and I think it knows that it has been rescued and that people love it. And people do. I actually do get the sense of what you mean because... I don't feel... I mean, I know that you're here with me, but I don't feel alone here, and not in a creepy, no. oh, there's ghosts. It's, it just feels very peaceful and very loved, very <laughs> populated um, with, by, by the living trees, but also by um, people who have chosen to be here very purposefully. Is there any sort of... Be before the Victorian era, was there any history around this area that about of, of um, burial grounds or anything similar? No. This used to belong to a local nobleman. There was a, a, a stately home here. Uh, so these were formal gardens, one of the reasons there weren't trees. So when it was developed by Stephen Geary, you know, he decided n not to put trees in because he wanted the, the views. This is the highest point. You see... I was nearly said, this is the highest point in North London. Of course, 200 years ago, we weren't in London. No. This was miles out of London. This was Middlesex. You know, this was uh, on the top of a, a, a green hill, surrounded by sheep and, uh, and cattle, miles from London. So when you came to bury a loved one, you'd stand here, you'd look down Highgate Hill here, uh, and in the distance you'd see a hump of, of, of infection and disease, which was the good old city of London in those days. Um, so that's why this place was chosen, because it was outside of London, away from all the pressures and the dangers of breathing the air, just operating uh, on the streets of London. And, um, and it proved very popular, you know, as a result. So back then, uh, how would one get here? Because today we could get the tube, we could get the bus, but back then, how would you get up here? Um, the people who were, who were buried here, really, they had money. They had the money to be buried here, and they therefore had money to get here, no problem, you know, they have carriages or whatever. Uh, but then they came all the time. Uh, you know, you, we, we have a loved one, we might go to see them on anniversaries, you know. We, death takes a very much a back seat in modern life. 
it was right up there with the Victorians. Death was very much part of life. And you came to see your loved ones, if you could, almost daily, certainly every week. Once a week, and that was bad form. You know, you should come more often. And this place made it easier. When we get to the catacombs, became so popular because people could come in all weathers and stand inside and talk to their loved ones. This is what they did, you know, they communed. Their loved ones had passed, but then gone, you know, they had just passed through this mortal veil. And so they would tell them the news and ask their views, and, and this place facilitated that in a way that standing at a graveside did not. Then we came to a flat part of the winding serpentine path. On either side of a tunnel leading up a small incline were two great columns. And, of course, John had something to say about these. I think, and this is just my opinion, I think this is what did it for Highgate, where we are now. These are the funerary buildings. This is the Egyptian avenue, the biggest crypts, 16... Uh, they take 16 people, eight on either side... We have no photos, we, have, we don't travel, we have no television, we have no way of knowing what these things look like. And suddenly in North London, here is, you know, with the obelisk, with the... Um, this was all painted, of course, in the beautiful colours of the inside of Pharaoh's tomb, so thrush egg blue and egg yolk yellow and gold. It was fabulous. There was a roof on it. John Betjeman's favourite Victorian spot, he said. Goldsworthy wrote Foresight Saga, sitting in a chair there where that chair is. This inspired people. And, and it could have gone completely the other way. This could have been seen as really naff. And it, you know, we're British, we're upper-class British. An Egyptian, you know, uh, way of death, leading through to the Greeks, leading through to the, to the, to the Romans. They're foreigners. You know what the Brits can think of foreigners, you know. <laughs> but they loved it. Uh, he took a gamble, but they loved it. And it, 30, 40 funerals every week, minimum, minimum funeral price in our money, adjusted, would be £40,000. I can see why they loved it, though, because it's, it's stunning. We've got no photos, obviously. Mm. Photos haven't been... But we do have a sketch from, we reckon, about 1840, 1842, taken from here... It's a postcard now. You, I'll show it to you if you want before you leave. But, and you'll see people taking the air, walking the paths. This was a beauty spot in North London, and people would come from miles around just to walk, even though they didn't have anybody buried here, just because it was so special and beautiful. And this was the highlight, I think, the Egyptian Avenue and these, this, this city of the dead, the, you know, the, 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 the city centre, you could call it. Let's go in. We never saw that postcard, but I'm hoping John and I will continue our friendship in a suitably retro-historic way, and maybe we'll become pen pals. John, if you're listening, I'm looking forward to receiving that postcard very soon. I mean, here... I've got the key if you want to go in. <laughs> we have trouble with our drains, because the drains were never very good here, and all these trees that grew up, all, all the roots got in, and they've kind of buggered up some of the drains, so we had a big problem with some of these, because we do not go into these crypts. The, the, you know, the, these are the last resting places of people. We respect that. We, you know, we don't take tours in there uh, uh, to the crypts, to the private ones, and so we didn't go in. And so nobody had been in for 200 years. So when people had to go in to fix the drains, they found an enormous cloud tumbling from the ceiling of giant spiders. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to go in? Um... <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm fine with that. I can face my fears. Yeah. 
I'm not going to take you in because I, I haven't got the key. But basically, <laughs> ba- basically, what we think happened is the coffin wood, the wood that the coffin was made of, had spiders' eggs. The, the oh, wood was from, a, I think, a tree in South America. Oh. The eggs hatched. These were not British spiders. They were much too big. And they are called cave spiders. They have to live in perfect darkness. They're not nocturnal. There's far too much light around at night time. They are cave spiders, need to live in darkness, and they end up in here for 200 years in a crypt that's never been opened. So they thrived. So when we went in, they were all having a a high old time. And, of course, it's their home, so we left them to it, fixed whatever needed to be fixed, and they're in there still. (laughs) (laughs) So now this was equally if not more uh, popular than the Egyptian Avenue, the Greek Circle. This was probably a bit more popular because it was... You didn't have to have 16 people. Party crypt. A party crypt, yes. So what we're looking at right now appears to be um, a circular, um, very large stone well, building, really, It's um, and it's enclosed in a, another sort of circular... Um, pathway with with high walls around it like a secret garden um beautiful little wildflowers everywhere as well um and there's lots of doors in this circular i'm going to suggest what a, a tomb cat, cat, catacomb uh, it's it's a tomb um and because it's above ground we we probably call it a crypt an egyptian crypt um on the doors uh, some more symbolism because i've not been talking much about it and it's everywhere this is the torch of life can you see a big uh, an effigy of a torch yes the one tor- of those torches with the fire coming out of yes. it but it's upside down it's upside down because it's been doused the torch of life has been doused. And there's a lot in Victorian times, and therefore here in a Victorian cemetery, of turning images upside down to denote death, passing and respect. If you look at our keyhole, look at the keyhole. What is it? It's uh, upside, upside down. down. It is upside down. <laughs> yeah. So Mabel Veronica Batten, the vault of John Aird... Scarborough, just, just, I'm assuming that's the family name, Scarborough. It is. The name above the door here, Mabel Veronica Batten, is not the most famous person in here. That's why, can you see, it's got flowers. It's not just Karl Marx who gets flowers here. We have a few other people who are real pin-ups. And this lady, Marguerite Radcliffe Hall, is what those flowers are all about. Someone will put flowers on her grave every day or every few days. So, I, I mean, I don't know who I put those flowers there, but it'll be a woman. Why do I know that? Because of Margaret Radcliffe Hall. Who is she? Was she a suffragette? <laughs> she was an early um, uh, pioneer of feminism, but she's most famous for a book she wrote called The Well of Loneliness. It's never been out of print. It was the first book ever about lesbianism. <gasps> She Brilliant. Was, she was a lesbian, and she wrote a novel about it, which was perfectly clear what was going on. Lots of dots at the end of chapters, nothing graphic. But for its time, shocking. Banned, of course. Printed, therefore, in Paris. Sold in Britain. Exaggerated prices. A, a, an absolute scandal. So she was a rich woman, which allowed her to get away with some of her foibles, like 
you know, um, being a lesbian, dressing as a man, uh, cutting. I mean, she she operated as a man, called herself John, a very beautiful man. She was an early feminist. She believed I should sleep with who I want to, do a job if I want to, because women of quality were not supposed to really have a job. That was the whole point about being a woman of quality. Terribly shocking, yeah. Yeah. I want to dress as I like, I want to do as I like, and even today women have struggled, don't they, to be equal. 200 years ago, this was absolute heresy. And so she's an absolute icon. And that book has never gone out of print. You can buy it in the Highgate bookshop, I'm sure. And that means people from, women from all over the world come and put flowers outside. Right, um, Marguerite, yes? Uh, Mar- Marguerite, uh, Radcliffe Hall, known as John. What are the other big hitters? Or who are the other big hitters in the, in the cemetery? Oh, I mean, you know, the most famous is Karl Marx. Uh, Albert Einstein called Michael Faraday, who's here, the greatest scientific genius who ever lived, the father of the 20th century, the man who gave us uh, electricity. Um, Oh, Douglas Adams, Jeremy Beadle. But in Victorian times, Mr Foyle, the bookshop man, um, the the list just goes on. John, you've spoken very eloquently about why it is you love this space. But how has it affected your relationship with with death itself? Do you have a new perspective on it? What really cemented my love of this place was I came here in 1976. And ten years later, our first child died. And we were so devastated. And I wanted somewhere special to bury her. And... I didn't want her to go in, a, you know, just an ordinary municipal... Uh, I certainly didn't want a cremation. We wanted a spot where she was going to be our first child. And I thought, because I, I hadn't been back here. I lived in those days uh, out in Buckinghamshire. I thought of Highgate, and I rang them up, and I said, are you... Do you, do you, do, do you take people to be buried? And they said, oh, yes. So we came, chose a lovely cherry tree under which we buried our little Phoebe. It's now the children's area there are lots of children who subsequently have been buried there and uh, that is why I particularly love this place I of course will end up here in fact only recently I've been shopping for a spot but they go very quickly and I had a little place in mind that the gravedigger Victor told me about but by the time I got my act together it had gone but you know I'm not going to go just immediately, but when I do, it's got to be to here. That's just beautiful. <laughs> it's a wonderful place for, for children. The cherry tree on the east is just amazing. So these are the catacombs. The, 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 the lock is, is new, so it probably won't make quite as good a noise. But, hey. Brought a tear to my eye, John. I think a lot of people are very scared of talking about death, but do, do you think that there is a new conversation to be had around the subject of death? Funnily enough, as I've got older, I think about it more, and it becomes more variety. And, and you do realise, look, you know, there's no getting away from this. <laughs> You've got to face it. Um, and... It is inevitable, so you've got to make your peace with it. No point raging, you know, go raging into the dying of the night. And if I imagine myself ending up here for eternity, I'll be, you know, well pleased. It's it's a lovely place. It's loved by people. One of the really special things about 
being a volunteer here is the people who come. Because mm. you don't just pass by. Hmm? You know, I volunteer in other places in central London, and people pop in, you know, because they're passing. And they, some are not interested, some are a bit snotty, to be honest, because they think they know more than the guides, etc. The, the visitors here, though, have made an effort to come. They're up for, for visiting. They love it already. And it makes a difference as a guide. You're talking to people who are on your side and just want to share your enthusiasm, and that's brilliant. I think that's, that's what's very apparent here, is that this is not a place for the dead. This is a place for the living, mm. and therefore it has that energy. And even in this beautiful... Um, it's, it is very atmospheric, very epic, but it's not eerie. Um, we're in a tunnel, we're in a... The, Where are we? These are the Roman catacombs. They're known as the terrace catacombs because above them uh, there is a terrace which had amazing views down over London. The terrace's claim to fame, there was the, f the first asphalt roof in, the, in, in Britain was put there. It's still there, I think. Um, and again, this was a big gamble. This is, these are Roman catacombs, so you can see these are shelves of dead people. Uh, I mean, that's what you've got to call them. These are all the coffins here. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of like a mortuary, sort of, yeah. you to open up the, the, um, uh, the, what, I, I think, I think of them as like filing cabinets, but they're not, they're, no. you know, but those little shelves and then you've got these, these coffins. They're called technically loculi, just means niche. There's a thousand of them in here. Everyone was full. And this was a big gamble that Stephen Geary took. Would upper class British people want to be on a shelf, you know, like in a grocery store, like a tin of peas, would they, uh, and I might be being fanciful here, but I'm not sure, would they want to spend eternity, literally, look how close these two coffins are in the next niches, eternity with someone you don't know, maybe not your social class, you may not have been introduced. These were considerations 200 years ago. The answer was yes. This thing just filled up, it sold like hotcakes. But, um, and all of them had um, a frontispiece, as it were. They all uh, had something on the front. You see some of them here? These little, these are windows. Yes, they have a sort of, um, mainly blocked up um, with stone, um, but mm. then a tiny little gap that definitely wouldn't fit the whole coffin through, but you could peek in. And that's the point. And they were looking in to make sure that their loved one was still there. Grave robbing, of course, was an enormous problem because it was semi-official. London was growing exponentially, and therefore, its its medical infrastructure, its hospitals, its doctors had to be trained, had to be established to serve this million-plus population. Now, of course, we're talking two hundred years ago. They needed bodies, you know, for training purposes. In the old days, executed felons had been supplied, and when London was a relatively small place, a thousand felons a year was, was about as much as they needed. Now they needed many thousands more bodies for trainee doctors. No one was ever going to give their body to medical science, not in those days, they were far too religious. So the medical authorities and the authorities stole them. And what people loved about Highgate was it was guarded night and day by guardsmen, ex-guardsmen, grenadier guards, Cold Street, you know, the, tough, the toughies of the British Army, and never once in all those years was a single body removed in Highgate. If you look, though, some of these loculi, it's empty, that one there, there's 200 that are. Those bodies were stolen, 
but they weren't stolen in the 1870s. They were stolen in the 1970s. Oh, Vampire hunters, voodoo followers, Satanists, all manner of weirdos. Nothing was to stop them. They came in here and they took away 200 bodies. Local children who used to come in and play in here, it was an adventure playground, they, they, they took up um, a little servant woman as a sort of doll, so they played with her corpse, carried that around, and some of the boys kicked the heads off some of the male corpses and played football. This is what prompted some women in, in, in Highgate here to take the company to court to say, this is appalling, you know, run this place like a cemetery. The company said, well, we can't, it's too expensive, you know. And they said, right, well, we will. They persuaded the judge a charity could do it through volunteers, and that's why the charity was formed. Grave robbing. <laughs> and is that why you originally came in 1970s? So the charity was formed, and then they had this open day, you know, to say it's under new management, come in and have a look around. I came up as a young uh, reporter to cover the event, and that's how I became involved. Wow. I mean, the, like playing football with, with uh, corpses' heads, it, some might call it disrespectful. I would also say unhygienic, potentially. <laughs> yes. Um, but, yes. It's just not right, is it? it it's <laughs> just not right from any which way. And that could have been more or less the end of my time with John and the end of this episode. But as we were wandering back towards the entrance to this Disneyland of death, which I had found so life-affirming, we took the opportunity, as we walked towards the entrance down the hill away from the catacombs at the uppermost point of the cemetery, to chat a little more about John's feelings around this city of death. Um, you remind me of a, a, a quite famous figure who came a few years ago here. He arrived one Sunday afternoon, I think. People may remember his name was Philip Gould. He was made an, a lord, Lord Gould. He was called the architect of New Labour. Uh, because he was the, uh, the politician sort of behind the relaunch of Labour. He arrived one day looking absolutely dreadful because he was dying. He was dying of cancer and he was going to be dead within a few weeks and he came to buy a space. And he took a great interest in the space, in what was going to go on the space, in what was going to happen at his, 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 his uh, funeral, when all of the Labour glitterati turned out, Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell, Gordon Brown. I mean, he was... Um, and he, he, he just faced it squarely with his daughters and his wife. And I thought, that is the thing. There's no way round this, you know, so embrace it. Make it as positive a thing as can be because it is going to happen and it's going to happen to you. So seize it and make sure that you do, you're not just... It's going to happen to you unless you take hold of it and make sure it happens in the way that you would wish. So embracing it, meaning that you can live life more fully because you're not afraid of the the, the other side? Yeah, absolutely, whatever the other side may be. Personally, I don't believe, you know, there is a heaven um, that I'll be going to. Having said that, there's no doubt at all that this place is a spiritual place. Something is going on here 
beyond the, the bricks and mortar and the headstones and gravel paths. There is. There's, something has been left here, some, some imprint of the people who've been here, either to be buried or those who, who've loved them and have come to mourn them. They've left a little bit of themselves. I can feel it as I walk around, particularly on my own. And um, So I don't quite know how to marry this. I don't think anything happens to us. But on the other hand, this place suggests... There is more, you know, something spiritual, a big dimension beyond, uh, you know, what what we can see. Well, I like that word you just used, which is love, um, because whether it's your stories that you told us about your daughter or whether it's the number of visitors that, that leave flowers for people um, that's significant, like Marguerite, um, or whether it's anonymous people coming to, to visit members of family... It's love, and love, love is the one thing that can last um, beyond. Mm. Yes, love is what it really is all about. And as John Lennon, amongst others, has said, you know, it's the one word that could sort it all out. He's not very here, is he? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> John, thank you so much for your time today. It's been eye-opening, beautiful, peaceful, um, transformative, and uh, uh, sadly, this is going to have to be the, um, the death of this particular episode in the series, but we're going to resurrect in the next episode. So we've just finished recording, and I actually just got a phone call from John. Well, you should go out and explore more of historic London, and... He's thought of somebody to recommend for the next episode, and it is... Shakira Akabusi. She's an amazing runner and fitness expert. It turns out she's a movement enthusiast. And knows more than a thing or two about our historic capital city. So join me next time. Earlier in this episode, John mentioned everything in the cemetery means something. And now, to me, John means something. Love is what it is all about, and it's what endures. This series continues to endure, so please do share the episodes thus far and let us know on all the social media outlets which guests have been your favourite thus far. Who would you recommend we go and visit in future episodes? Find me, Juliet Burton, and all my socials in the episode breakdown and get in touch. This has been Not So Lonely Planet, a hat-trick production. Produced by Andy Goddard and John Wakefield. Executive producer is Claire Broughton, and I'm your presenter, Juliet Burton. I look forward very much to connecting and enthusing with you about a brand new topic next time.